Let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Uh, before we read the text and pray together, um, I do want to take a second. Um, uh, Chad did remember the announcement I was supposed to make, so I'm thankful for that. It's why we have friends, they can help us remember things that we forget. And uh, so please make plans to be here next week and stay after the service if you're a member. Um, that will be an important time. Um, but We've been praying for a while for uh, Marge Millman's father. Um, you know, he had a stroke and has had ongoing medical issues since then. And Marge has been back and forth to Brownstown uh, continually, staying down there sometimes, being up here. Um, and she made uh, the difficult decision to sell her house and, and be there uh, at least temporarily, permanently. Uh, with her dad, and that is a decision that honors her father, and in honoring her father, she is honoring the Lord, and um, so we are thankful. We will miss Marge. Uh, I don't know how the city of Indianapolis, quite frankly, will function without Marge volunteering at every event that is held in the city of Indianapolis, uh, but we are thankful for you, Marge, and uh, we have in our in our membership role, we have what we call a special status, which means that those who are go away to college or are shut in or off on military or those kind of things, uh, that we uh, put those there just because we don't know what the future will hold for them. Uh, and we'll do that with Marge. But we want to just take a moment to pray for Marge as she makes this transition uh, before, we, before we continue. Father, we come before you thankful that you raise up servants for every part of your kingdom. And we come this morning to thank you for Marge, for her ministry among us, for all of the countless hours that have been spent uh, behind the scenes uh, making so many things happen, her intense involvement in our uh, missions team and Lord, we just thank you for her, and we, we pray, God, that you will bless her as she makes this decision and transition. We pray that you will provide the buyer needed for her home. We pray that you will give her strength, that she will know every morning that your mercies are new, that you give strength for all that you call us to. We pray that you will help her and that her ministry to her father would be good and honoring to you and beneficial to him. And Lord, we ask that, um, God, that you would just, that you would bless her. We pray she will know your love for her, your presence with her as she goes to serve in this way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We will miss you, Marge. All right. Uh, but you better come back. Uh, Daniel chapter 9. What I'm going to do is read verses 20 to 27. Um, and then we'll pray again for God's help in, in dealing with this text. And, um, and, then, and then we'll go on. So let me read first Daniel 9, verses 20 to 27. This is what the Spirit says. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel... 
and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to this text seeking You, seeking to know what You would teach us. And Lord, we know that apart from Your help and the help of Your Spirit, we will learn nothing, nothing of lasting value, nothing that will change our hearts, nothing that will shape our lives. And so we pray now that as we open Your Word. I pray, God, that You would give me strength in the Spirit to speak with clarity and conviction and power. And I pray that we all might gain from our time seeking to understand what You have said to us. We pray that Jesus Christ will be exalted. We pray that Your church will be strengthened. We pray that those who don't know Christ We'll find him today by your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Alistair Begg is one of uh, kind of my anonymous mentors. Uh, uh, it was through his preaching that God actually called me to do what I am doing now uh, through a particular sermon on Second Chronicles chapter 20 at a one-day conference at Southern Seminary. And, um, but he's also one of those preachers that, that if I listen to him preach on a text that I'm about to preach, I can't get his words out of my head. I can't get his outline out of my head. I can't get his accent out of my head. I mean, there are a number of things I can't get out of my head. So I just don't listen to him teach on anything I'm about to teach. Uh, this week, though, I stumbled across something that he said. It was in writing. But something he said 
when he was about to teach this text at the end of Daniel 7. This is what he said. In what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening, and as often as necessary for the rest of my life, until I finally settle the matter. What I'm about to now unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. Well, that's about how I feel coming to this text to try to teach you. Um, and if you've spent any time studying or reading about or just meditating on this text, you'll know why he might say something like that, especially if you read widely, because there are a number of ways that pastors and scholars understand uh, this ordeal of the 70 weeks and the events that are described here. Uh, there's very little that actually has strong unanimity across all of those places. Um, and while we'll look at some of those things, I want to be clear right at the outset that God did not give us this text so that we might have a puzzle to work, but so that we might have a promise to cling to. He did not give us this text to give us a calendar so much as He gave it to us to give us hope. And so that's what my aim is today. I believe God gave Daniel this revelation to give him hope and to give us hope. And He does it, as we'll see, because He loves Daniel. And so I, I walk away with these eight verses seeing that God expresses His love by revealing His purposes and giving us hope. That's what I think He's doing here. He's, because He's loving God expresses His love, first for Daniel, then for us, by revealing His purposes and giving us hope. You know, some of you have rubbing, been rubbing your hands together all week. I can't wait for this thing and the charts and the graphs that will unfold. And uh, I, You will be among those who are disappointed. I have no charts for you. I have no graphs for you. But Lord willing, I have some encouragement for you. First, as we come to this text, we see that God answers Daniel's prayer. I mean, I realize that most of us have our minds stuck on the 70 weeks, but that prophecy comes in the context of Daniel's prayer. And you'll remember last week we looked at that prayer. Remember, through, through, Jeremiah's, prom through Jeremiah's prophecy, God had promised that He would punish Babylon, that He would act, and that He would bring His people back to Jerusalem, that he would restore his people. And that's why Daniel's praying. And, and what you see, essentially, as this text begins, is that God comes to the prayer meeting. God comes to Daniel's prayer meeting and taps him on the shoulder and says, uh, excuse me, I'd like to give you an answer now. Now look at verses 20 and 21. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God and for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight. It was while he was still praying, while he was still seeking the Lord, while he was still presenting his plea, while he was confessing his sin. I mean, don't you want your prayer life to get to that place? Wouldn't that be great? You're just in the middle, you're in the middle of praying for some intervention from the Lord, and your prayer time gets interrupted by the answer. That's precisely, I mean, we would want that. It actually reminds me of George Mueller. 
You know that name. George Mueller operated orphanages in England, and, and uh, he actually said he started the orphanages in order to teach the church that God answers prayer because he wouldn't go around saying how much money he needed to feed the orphans. He would only tell the Lord. And the stories of God answering prayer are amazing. There was one morning, the entire table is set for breakfast, but they had no food. And the little girl who was standing by Mueller's side remembered him praying, Dear Father, we thank Thee for what Thou art going to give us to eat. As soon as they finished praying, there was a knock at the door. And a baker was standing there with bread. He couldn't sleep the night before because he was certain the Lord wanted him to bake this bread for these children. And so they take the bread in, and the door closes. And not so many minutes later, another knock at the door. You see, the man that delivers milk, his cart broke down just outside the orphanage, and he couldn't make the morning deliveries. So, rather than the milk going to waste, he gives it to the orphanage, finishing their breakfast. These kinds of stories happen over and over again in Mueller's life. If you haven't read the autobiography of George Mueller or his little book, uh, Answers to Prayer, you need to do that. And uh, th- this connection actually hit me late in the week. Those, those, both of those books will be in the books in the cafe by next Sunday. I would encourage you to read them. They're very encouraging. Anyway, this kind of swift answer to prayer is what Daniel gets. But notice, God's answer isn't what might be expected. God will act, but that's not his immediate answer. Okay, so Daniel's praying for restoration. He's praying for the suffering to be over. He wants God's anger to be lifted, remember? He wants God's face to shine on the sanctuary. In other words, Daniel's praying for what he thinks is the finish line. God, let's just get through this exile. Just get us back. Get us back to where we were. Let's let's cross this finish line, God. I mean, the end of the 70 years, that's the end, right, God? This whole business of of suffering under foreign uh, oppressors and dealing with destruction and desolation to Jerusalem and the the temple, that'll be done when that happens, right, God? Well, no, it won't. The end of the 70 years isn't the end. God's promises are bigger than that. His purposes are bigger than that. And the revelation of those purposes is what Daniel gets. This is his answer in verse 22. Gabriel comes, verse 22, He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Notice the Revelation-type words. He, he made me understand at the beginning. And then Gabriel's words, I have come to give you insight and understanding. Now, it's not the action necessarily right at this moment that Daniel was praying for, but it is a gracious answer to his prayer. And look at why God answers Look at verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you as as soon as he began praying. Isn't that wonderful? As soon as he began praying, the answer was on the way. Now, when it was coming is not in Daniel's time. But But he says why he did it in the very next phrase. For you are greatly loved. 
To be greatly loved here means to be desired, to be esteemed, to be precious. Daniel is precious to God. Daniel abides, if you will, in God's love. You remember what Jesus told His disciples, right, in John 15, if you obey My commandments, you will abide in My love. Well, Daniel, we've seen it all through this book. He's been keeping God's commandments. He's been faithful to God. He hasn't defiled himself. He hasn't compromised his faith. And we even see a bit of his faithfulness in this text. Look at, look at verse 21. He talks about Gabriel coming to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Well, now, that just, you may just gloss right over that if you're not careful, but you need to raise your hand and ask, what does that mean? I mean, Daniel hasn't been in Jerusalem for 70 years. And the temple's been destroyed for about 50 years by this time. There hasn't been an evening sacrifice in decades. But isn't it interesting what Daniel's internal clock is set to? His internal clock is set to the true worship of God. That's part of what faithfulness is. When the the very clock of our lives is set by serving and worshiping God. And so Daniel's heart longs for that true worship. He doesn't stop talking about it as if it's never coming back. He's read, he's read the Bible. He's read his Bible. He's read Jeremiah's prophecy. Oh, it'll be back. We'll be back there. But he longs for it. And this revelation is an expression of God's love for Daniel, but also for the Jews who would read this and for us. God ordained that his revelation of his purposes would be recorded and passed down. I mean, imagine if it hadn't been. Imagine if the Jews went back thinking getting back is the finish line, right? This is the finish line. We're going to be back. It's going to be great. The whole nation is just going to glow with the glory of God. Nothing's ever going to happen again. We're going to be on top and we're never going down again. And then in the subsequent centuries, do you know what happens? They go down again. The temple's desecrated. Greece rules over them. Rome rules over them. In AD 70, the temple and the city are destroyed all over again. So it's actually gracious and loving of God to say, look, this isn't the finish line. There is more to my plan than just the end of this exile. There's something bigger. And so he tells them, there'll be more war, more devastation, but don't fear because his purposes are still being accomplished. Isn't that good news? Wouldn't that be good news for the Jews to know at the end of the 70 years when things start to go bad, when Antiochus IV comes to power and desecrates the temple and sets up Zeus and starts human sacrifices in the second century? Wouldn't it be great for those those Jews to look back at this and say, but don't forget what God said. He said there was more coming. And knowing that, they can endure. Knowing that God holds the end in His hands, they can endure. Isn't that good for your own life? 
Isn't that good to know that no matter what happens, no matter what you see in your life, no matter what you see on the pages of a newspaper, if you can even find one anymore that they print on real, actual paper made from trees, but whatever you see in the newspaper, whatever you read on your Yahoo News, whatever you see going on in the world, God's purposes have not been thwarted by the world's problems. I mean, I think sometimes we get into a really tough situation. We get into a long trial, and we think if this would just be over, then then everything will be better after that. And then it ends, and then there's more, and then there's more, and then there's more. And do you know what you need to know and I need to know when there's more and more and more? God still is on the throne and His purposes are still being worked out and His full and final redemption promised in Jesus Christ will be ours. You need to know that. I need to know that. Because we have to hang on to it in the darkest of days. God's revelation is expression of His love, this answer to Daniel's prayer. Well, now let's move on to the revelation itself. Okay, so Daniel, first is Daniel, uh, God answers Daniel's prayer, and the second heading would be God reveals his purposes. Let's read 24 to 27 again. Seventy years are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and, re- and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So, The 70 years in exile won't be the end. There's still this other 70. Now, in some of your minds, you may have a number of categories in your mind, and you're waiting to see what might be said about these four verses so that you can write my name in one of those categories. Let me just assure you, you shouldn't do that. All right? We should listen to see what what is it that God says. And and I'm quite sure, because I've read so many things about this just in this last week and even before this series ever began, uh, I'm quite certain I disagree with a lot of people. And I'm quite certain a lot of people disagree with me. And I'm quite certain, I'm not quite certain, I I wish it weren't so, but it's very likely that some of us disagree. I think in the end, the thing that we will agree on will be more important, more significant, and more long-lasting than the things that we might disagree on. So, 
we launch in. In fact, when I was reading one commentary on it, he goes on and on all these things about the 70 weeks. And then, uh, you know, and then, he's, and then he literally, this is the sentence, all right, it's time to bite the bullet. And then like he, <laughs> then he says, this is what I think, all right? I won't tell you what he thinks. I, I don't agree with him. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I know his pain. All right, but the 70 years are over, but there's still this other 70 to deal with. It's kind of like when you go hiking, uh, you get to a pl- you want to get to the peak so you can get the best view, uh, you know, see all the scenery. When you get to what you think is the peak, only to look around and see, oh, wait, the path still goes up, and there's more to see, and there's more where to go. You see, Daniel, Daniel thought the end of the 70 years was the peak. Uh, and it's not. There's still this matter of 70 weeks, or more literally, 77s. Uh, but as I said, God, as I said before, and I'll probably say it again, God does not give this to us in order to give us a calendar. I try to put myself in these people's minds. I'm not sure they would, be, uh, they would spend their meetings discerning dates. I think they'd be looking for the hope. And that's what I think God gave it us gave it to us for but still you have to deal with the calendar language because it's there so uh, you, you've heard this saying uh, don't miss the forest for the trees All right. Uh, in other words don't miss the big picture by zeroing in and going down the rabbit hole of every detail um, well we're going to look at the details but then we're going to zoom out and look at the big picture We're going to look at the trees, but then we're going to zoom out and look at the forest, okay? So probably to begin, it would be good, just just so you can see how difficult this is, for me to just very, very, very briefly lay out different ways that people have taken these 70 weeks, all right? The first camp that we'll look at is the literal camp, all right? Now, literal, meaning... Uh, each week, each seven, is a period of seven years. So 70 weeks would equal 490 years. But even within this literal camp, there's divided opinion, okay? So one part of the camp says it'll be continual, and it will end with, and it ended with the reign of Antiochus IV in the second century B.C., Another group says, no, 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 it's continual, and it will end in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Another group says, no, 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 it's not so continual as you say. There's a separation here. Most of it is continual, uh, but then there's a separation. You see, there's 483 years, and then there's a gap, a kind of prophetic gap, and then there's another seven literal years that will come later on. Okay, that's uh, at least three positions in the literal camp. And then there's the symbolic camp, that these 77s aren't meant to be taken like that, uh, but instead they should be symbolic, and they too are divided. All the symbolic people don't agree. Some say it's going to end in AD 70 with the fall of Jerusalem, and others say it will end, these uh, years will end with the second coming of Christ. Now, I lay that out just so you can see the territory that we're about to walk, all right? We're not walking through all of these things. Um, But a lot of pastors and teachers that you love and listen to and benefit from will fall in different places within that list. 
Well, where does that leave me? I won't say us because, like I said, I don't know. But let me express to you what I, what I understand. Does it, leave, does it leave us in the literal camp or does it leave us in the symbolic camp? Well, before I answer, I want you to know that when, when we come to the text of the Bible, we must be very careful not to come with a predetermined theological framework in mind before we get to the Bible. Because the Bible has to be the master of the theological framework, not the theological framework, the master of the Bible. Because if the theological framework is the master of the Bible, then what I'll be doing, what I'll find myself doing at times where the Bible's words don't seem to fit my theological framework precisely, I'll start goofing around with the meaning of the Bible to make it say what my theological framework says it should say. All right? We don't want to do that. I have sought not to do that. And with that said, I will tell you, I don't fit in any of those categories neatly. None of them. Doesn't that just throw a wrench in things? <laughs> well, let me explain. If you'll take, just turn backwards one page in Daniel to Daniel 7. And just, I just want to remind you of where we've been. If you look at Daniel 7, you will see uh, the headline, if you will. It's not part of the Bible, but it's a helpful editorial insert. That headline that's over chapter 7 says, Daniel's vision of the four beasts. And these four beasts, as we saw when we were there, outline world history from the time of Daniel to the end. Okay? The first three of those beasts are very definitive. I mean, the beasts are symbols but they represent literal kingdoms, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, and then Greece. And then when we got to the fourth beast, we said, well, this must be Rome. But then it's, it's not quite Rome because it goes on beyond Rome. There are these ten horns that represent ten kingdoms, and then there's a little horn that comes out of there. So it's as if we're going along in a kind of timely manner, and then when we get to Rome... We start this process that extends out to the end, all right? Now, I think that is the kind of thing that is happening in Daniel chapter 9. With these weeks, these first 69 weeks are more literal, and that last week, it just doesn't look like the same kind of week. So, with that in mind, let's walk through the calendar. The first seven weeks, beginning of chapter 20, uh, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So a word will go out. It's either a prophetic word or a royal decree that goes out and from that time... Uh, Jerusalem will be rebuilt in 49 years. Now, of course, this anointed one that's mentioned here, as with almost every other detail in these four verses, this anointed one, there's great uh, discussion about who it is. Is this Cyrus, who God called his anointed one? Uh, is this um, uh, Joshua, who served as high priest during the 
rebuilding of Jerusalem? Is this Zerubbabel? Is this Ezra? And, and the list honestly goes on. You can settle that one at lunch. If you can settle that one at lunch and just let me know who it is, wonderful. All right? The point is, is that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and it's going to be sooner rather than later. There's not going to be a long period of time before Jerusalem is rebuilt. And then we get to the 62 weeks, the very next sentence. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay? The people are back in the land and the city is rebuilt, but it's not without trouble. If you've read the book of Nehemiah, you know what kind of trouble they even faced in the construction of the wall. People are opposing them. But not only that, Jerusalem never returns to its former glory. Israel is never back on the world stage as a dominant power. In fact, they will still be dominated by enemies in the centuries to come, by Greece and then by Rome. But these these weeks of years, if you will, take us to the time of Christ, uh, verse 26. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. One of the very few places where interpretations come together. Anointed one can be used generally, as it was in verse 25. Prophets are anointed in the Old Testament. Priests are anointed in the Old Testament. Kings are anointed in the Old Testament. This particular anointed one gets cut off. And as the Bible unfolds, we find that this anointed one is also prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 53, where verse 8 says, He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. This cut off anointed one is Jesus Christ. And why was he cut off, according to Isaiah 53, for the transgression of my people? Jesus Christ died for our sins. Just two verses earlier in Isaiah, he writes writes this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friend, that's you. The all there includes you. All who come to Jesus Christ for salvation are saved. His blood is sufficient to forgive and save as many as come to Him by faith. There is nothing that you have done that the blood of Jesus cannot forgive. This cut-off one is Jesus Christ, and He was cut off for you. He was cut off from the land of the living so that you might dwell all your days in the land of the living. Eternal life. All of eternity. And Jesus dies. He is cut off. And then God raises Him again on the third day. And He ascends to heaven. And then the Spirit of God is sent. You remember this? On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes. 
and empowers the people of God to serve God, to take His gospel to the ends of the world, to build and strengthen His church, for His kingdom to advance, for there to be little local outposts of the kingdom of God all over the world, foreshadowing just a little taste of the fact that one day the whole world will be the kingdom of God. And what is it that the coming of the Spirit initiates? What is it that breaks in? What is it that starts, biblically speaking? The last days. The last days don't begin at the very, 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 very end of world history. The last days began with the coming of the Spirit of God at Pentecost. We are in the last... Otherwise, Paul writing to Timothy about what he needs to watch out for in the last days is silliness. But it's not silliness because we're still in the last days. It sounds very fast, doesn't it? The last days? Like it could be any day now, and truly, it could be any day now. The Lord can do it. But it sounds much faster than it's actually played out, hasn't it? Well, that's the way that I take the last week. Verse 26, keeping on. After the anointed one is cut off, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. It is here probably where... uh, there's disagreement where I may fall into a, a somewhat of a disagreement with, with some of you. But I believe this week isn't a week like all the other weeks. I think it's not quite a week. The way Rome is an extended kingdom, it was not quite Rome. And in this last week come wars and desolations and the prince of the people. Now, who is this? It is the one who opposes God's people. It is one who opposes true worship. It is one who gathers people to himself by forceful deception. That making a covenant doesn't mean we're all happy-go-lucky around the table signing a covenant. It's something that's forced on other people to follow him, to even worship him. This is Antichrist. But how does the New Testament talk about Antichrist? The New Testament does not talk about Antichrist only as a singular person, but as the spirit of Antichrist that rules over this age, and as many many Antichrists come. That's why I take this to not simply be the Antichrist, capital A, but the spirit of Antichrist that exists in the world. And the fact that many will come. You remember what John says in 1 John 2, right? Children, it is the last hour. Well, that's short language, isn't it? It is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and he is. So now many Antichrists have come. One expression of this, of Antichrist, is in AD 70, when, as verse 26 tells us, the city and the sanctuary are destroyed. It's done by Rome. It's led by Titus Flavius Vespasianus. 
But there will be a final Antichrist, capital A, the little horn of the fourth kingdom in Daniel chapter 7, the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he's described here as the one who makes desolate in the last part of verse 27. But friends, look at me. Just lay your calendar down for just a second and look at me. Whatever your calendar might read, the one who makes desolate, the desolator, his end is not in doubt. It is decreed. The desolator will be decimated. One commentator says the Antichrist exalts himself, imposes his authority, forbids true worship, instigates idolatrous worship, and runs into the meat grinder of God's decree. Predetermined, on target, certain. Whatever else you say about these weeks, cling to that. Because the anointed one being cut off is agreed upon, and the ultimate end of the desolator is agreed upon. So, there's the calendar. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and the last week. But we need to back away from these details and see the big picture because otherwise our heads will just be spinning and smoke will be coming out our ears for one reason or another as we leave. Look at the forest. Look at the hope. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Look at what God will accomplish through the 70 weeks. At the end of the 70 weeks, all of this will be accomplished. He will first finish the transgression, as in the way a mobster finishes another person. He will bring it to an end. It is the end of rebellion against God, the end of it on earth. It's over. He will put an end to sin. It can't hurt us anymore. It can't be held against us anymore. He atones for iniquity, the reconciliation of God and man through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. In the prophecy in Isaiah 9, it says that prophesying about Jesus says that He will establish it, the kingdom, and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He will seal both vision and profit. Now, to seal here doesn't mean to seal it off so you never see it again. To seal here means that God verifies and authenticates everything that He has said. 2 Corinthians 1 says that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. 
and he will anoint a most holy place. The most holy place was the holy of holies that had cubed dimensions. And in the end, in Revelation 21, a cubical city descends from heaven and covers the whole earth, and it is the new Jerusalem where we dwell with God forever. You just read that list. Just read the list. Finish the transgression. Put an end to sin. Atone for iniquity. Bring in everlasting righteousness. Seal both vision and profit. Anoint a most holy place. And you just ask yourself, who does that sound like to you? That sounds like Jesus Christ. That sounds like everything that God will accomplish through Jesus Christ. You see, the purpose of God is bigger than Jerusalem's rebuilt walls. His purpose is bigger than a rebuilt temple. His purpose is the end of everything that is wrong in this world and the establishment of His good and righteous and perfect and eternal kingdom. With God's anointed one, the prophet, priest, and king sitting on the throne, Jesus Christ. A kingdom that doesn't just fill a city or a nation, but fills the earth, a new earth. A kingdom made up not of Jews only, but of Jews and Gentiles, men and women from every people, language, tribe, and tongue. A kingdom where sin is put to an end and righteousness reigns. Friends, when it comes to this text, do not get lost in the trees. Do not get lost in the weeks. Do not get lost in your calendar. Do not get lost in your graph. Do not get lost in your chart. Seek to understand. Seek to grow to understand. Keep studying hard, but don't get lost. Don't go down rabbit holes that you never come out of. Don't get lost in the trees. Instead, get lost in the wonder of the forest of God's hope in Jesus Christ. Get lost in that. Get wrapped up in that. So that when troubles come and when wars multiply and rumors of wars circulate and desolations increase and, and, and evil marches on and the spirit of Antichrist gains traction and the world is more and more deceived and dark grows darker and the good is called evil and evil is called good. And when faithfulness to God means marginalization and opposition and persecution and hatred from the world, when all of that continues... Remember the 70 weeks. Remember that God in His love reveals this and tells us the end is sure. So that you can walk by faith and not by sight. So that you can endure. Remember the guarantee of His promise which was publicly proclaimed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul, his teaching to the churches, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And remember, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. And though many more dangers and many more toils and many more snares await us in the days to come.
the grace of God in Jesus Christ, His amazing grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly before You, knowing that apart from You we can do nothing, apart from Your Spirit we will not see and love and grip and cling to and live according to Your truth. And so I pray that while we continually seek to understand things that are difficult for us, we recognize that when you spoke them, they were crystal clear in your mind. You did not give us a puzzle to work, but a promise to cling to. You did not intend to give us debates, but hope. And so I pray you'll help us to see the hope even as we seek to understand things we don't know yet. God, we thank you that through Jesus Christ you finished transgression and put an end to sin and atone for iniquity, that you will bring in everlasting righteousness, that you have sealed both vision and prophet, and that you will anoint a most holy place that He prepares a place for us, and if He prepares a place for us, He will come again, that where He is, there we may be also. Help us to cling to that, cling to our Savior, cling to hope in the darkest of days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.